I'm Bob Dickey, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Leap Podcast. I'm really excited about this episode, but I need to give you a little of the backstory. My wife, Brandy, and I decided to take a trip over Veterans Day weekend down to the beautiful Gulf Shores of Alabama to check out a resort where I'll be holding a conference in a few months. Brandy was touring the hotel and came back to the room excited to tell me of a veteran she had met in the elevator, and she told me of his story about him and a bunch of guys meeting down here for a big reunion and to see the Naval Air Show at the Pensacola Naval Air Station over the next couple of days. She knows I love the military and talking with veterans and thought I'd be able to connect with them during our stay. Fortunately, the next morning up on the club level, I popped in to get breakfast and to sit down and to listen to a podcast. While seated there, a lady named Gloria walked over and introduced herself and pointed to a large table in the middle of the room with a group of distinguished men talking and laughing and started to give me their backstory. That right there was none other than the Pensacola Naval Air Station Flight School Class of 1958, 28-58 to be exact. They were back for their yearly reunion and to watch the Blue Angels over the next few days with special dinners and activities on base. Little did I know that I was staying at their hotel and found myself in the midst of their party. I told Glory I was an Air Force veteran and I would love to hear their stories. And I was kindly given an invitation to join this group of American heroes reliving their time and service. As I sat down, I could not help but ask question after question. The stories were fascinating, ranging from their time in service during the Cuban Missile Crisis to stories of later in their career when some of them became commercial airline pilots. I love to ask questions and learn, especially from veterans. And I found myself in this little club on the eighth floor of the hotel every morning at breakfast when this group of men met, and then in the evening when they came back before heading out to dinner. The conversations were engaging. The camaraderie was high, the memories long, and I left each meeting knowing I had just spent time with a group of American heroes, and it actually made me love America even more. I was in awe of this tight-knit group of friends who had stayed connected all these years. Now, their families got together yearly for this reunion. It reminded me how friendships and bonds formed during life are so important. How going through challenging times and obstacles with a team of people bind you together in ways you can't even imagine. These men had forged friendships through adversity and hardship, and it was a bond unbroken by time or distance. I wanted my children to hear these stories. I wanted to remember what I was hearing. I took a gamble and I told Glory about my podcast, and as luck would have it, I had my equipment with me. I knew this ask would be enormous. These men had a tight schedule and way more important things to do than to talk with a stranger in a hotel. But one thing I've learned in life is nothing ventured, nothing gained. Gloria, do you think these men would mind giving me an interview? I just want to ask a few questions. She got on her phone and looked up the podcast that I was telling her about. She started showing it to some of her friends. She then showed them in. And before long, I had my answer. They were all in. I'd like to thank Gloria for being the one who helped get this entire thing put together. She's a kind soul who's not afraid to talk to a stranger. And within minutes, you feel like you have a long lost friend. I'd also like to thank Jennifer McIntyre and the entire Perdido Beach Resort staff for giving us access to the boardroom to have this interview. Without that quiet spot, this would not have been possible. 
I'd also like to thank Captain Walter, call sign Dub Fields, for his friendly conversation with my wife that was the lead domino to set this whole thing up. And with that, I'd like to give a big salute to the naval aviators you are about to hear in this interview for your service to our country and your continued work to represent the men and women in the United States Navy and our entire military so well. It was an honor to speak with each of you. I salute Captain Walter Dubfields, Captain Bill Soames, Captain Rodney Neubauer, Commander Bob Volarez, and Lieutenant Floyd Jeromo. So with that, and without any further ado, let's jump right in. Gentlemen, it is my distinct honor to be able to be sitting here before you this morning in front of a, a group of distinguished naval from uh, the, the class of 1958 here at Pensacola uh, Naval Air Station. And I, it is such a lucky chain of events for my wife to have been in an elevator and she came back to the room. We're down here at the Perdido Beach Resort. And I was up in my room kind of getting ready for dinner. And she, she ran into me. And she came back. She said, Bobby. That's what she calls me. Bobby. I, I ran into the sweetest uh, old gentleman in the, in the uh, elevator. And he's a, he's a Navy pilot. And you need to chat with him. He was telling me everything that was going on. They got the Blue Angels down here. And, and I was like, oh, okay. And then the next morning... I believe it was we we met it was over breakfast and so dub you were that distinguished naval aviator who uh i think might have been flirting with my wife in the in the elevator so why don't we go down this uh this list you guys are having a reunion here so why don't you give us your name uh your rank when you retired uh maybe your last duty assignment and the type of airplane that you are flying and just introduce yourself okay well uh my official name is Walter Fields. My nickname is Dub. And uh, ever since uh, a certain incident occurred in my naval career, my call sign now is Fireball. And we won't go into that right now. Uh, I retired as a uh, Navy captain. And uh, my last duty station flying the F-8 Crusader was at uh, actually Navy Dallas, uh, before I moved to Minnesota, and then um, they didn't have airplanes any longer because uh, they were all taken away uh, when the uh, vice president at the time uh, lost his election as to become president. And so that was their punishment uh, in Minnesota to get rid of the airplanes from the Naval Reserve, and the Air Force then took over the base and as further punishment uh, for for backing who they thought was going to be the next president. Uh, as far as flirting with your wife in the elevator, I did not know that she had six children <laughs> and, and was married. <laughs> but I thought she was awfully nice. Uh, she thought you were awfully nice, too. <laughs> you, made, you made quite a first impression. Well, she loved you. Well, the older gentleman, I'm not sure what she meant by that. I think she was referring to somebody else she That's saw right. outside before That's I right. entered. That's so, right. That's right. You're you're still young at heart. I can tell. Yes, I can I tell. Am, yes, I sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> Who's this distinguished gentleman to your right? Okay, it's Rodney Neibauer, and my call sign is Rocket Rod. Anyway, I retired as a captain from the Navy. Uh, last duty station was commanding officer of a P three squadron in South Weymouth, Massachusetts, and then um, uh, I spent. Uh, 20 years active duty, or 20 years uh, active in the Navy, the Navy Reserve, and uh, 
35 years flying commercially. So that's my career. Fantastic. Who would you? Who did you fly commercially for? For U.S. Airways. For U.S. Air. Yeah. Awesome. I want to hear. I'm hear a little more of your story here. Let's keep going down the the line. We got. This is. Um, well, I'll let you introduce yourself. I'm Bob Valer. <clears throat> Live in Colorado. Uh, my uh, last duty station was uh, Comnev Airline Staff. Uh, we worked for the command, the the, cap, the admiral there, and traveled all through the the uh, area. Of, London and other places we stayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, retired as a Navy commander, and uh, my last duty station was in, uh, as I said, in, in uh, Rhode Island. So, oh, fantastic! Thanks, Bob. Lieutenant Floyd Jeromo. I spent less than four years in on active duty. Two years in flight training. Two years in AEW bar on pack in Barbers Point, Hawaii. Uh, my first duty station was Barbers Point, and my last duty station was Barbers Point. Wow. Uh, picked up a wife en route. Uh, <laughs> and uh, my military career actually started. I was a sophomore at the University of Minnesota. I was very young, 17 and a half. I joined the reserves, same outfit that Dub talked about at NAS Minneapolis. Wow. And uh, went in as an airman recruit. I made it all the way to airman apprentice, and I saw this nice sign saying, two years of college, sign up and be a naval aviator and get your wings of gold. Wow. But two months later, I was headed to Pensacola. That's fantastic. Bill Soames, a retired Navy captain, uh, joined the Navy in 1958, retired I was 20 years old and retired when I was 50 years old in 1988. Wow. Uh, my last duty station was, I was a deputy commander of the Southeast NORAD region at uh, Tyndall Air Force Base right down the road here at Panama City, Florida. Tyndall Air Force Base is where I did my ba- uh, officer basic training in the Air Force. So I, I spent some time there. You know, th- Do you know that... Uh, the golf shack there at the golf course at Tyndall. I, mm-hmm. I, I didn't get to spend too much time on the golf course do at you know, basic, but. <laughs> do, you, do you know the story behind that? I don't, no, sir. Well, it belonged to a family. And, and the man, the father of these two girls who were still alive when we were there, I, I never personally met them. I've only heard their stories. But that, that golf clubhouse is absolutely gorgeous it's like a pine lodge pine big pine log uh, rafters uh absolutely beautiful house and these girls father built that uh right on saint andrew's bay there uh waterfront property magnificent structure and then world war ii came along and and the army said we need your property. And so they relinquished that, that building to their to the army and they built they turned that into the golf clubhouse and those girls will never forgive the army for doing that. Yeah. You're thinking it's gonna be for some like national security issues and oh, they turned yeah. it into a golf oh, course. Yeah. <laughs> <You're> like- <laughs>
Well, let's see. Um, Bill, we were just chatting over breakfast. Um, you know, I, I want to get into a couple of different things about your guys' career, maybe some of the things that you learned. Um, as, you, as you look back, you guys are, I, I've, I've watched you now over the course of maybe a day and a half, and, you know, we've engaged, uh, and there's a little club level here at the uh, hotel. And so we've been able to have breakfast together in the morning and uh, drinks together in the evening. And I've, I've just kind of watched you guys, the camaraderie, and I'm, I'm thinking back, I'm, look, I'm trying to, you know, go back down memory lane and just imagine you guys as a bunch of, you know, young men starting your career. Um, and what was the world like for you? I'd like to know, like, as you, as you guys were entering into, maybe we can start on this end of the table and go down, but 1958, you guys are, you're young boys, you know, say young men starting off in your career. What, what was America like in 1958? Um, I would imagine is that we, are we, you know, uh, still at the height of the cold war? So is it the, is it the, is there fear of the Soviet union, uh, maybe, um, internationally, but what's, ha what's happening domestically here in the United States? You know, we're just to what, uh, just a, maybe a decade or so past world war, uh, two, the, the end of world war two. So you guys probably grew up and you probably saw images of that. And I'm just curious of like, you know, what inspired you to, to join the military? And what's going on in the United States? What is it like to be a young man in 1958 about ready to enter military service? Well, in 1958, the United States of America uh, was king of the hill. We had won World War II just 13 years prior. Uh, we were a united country. Uh, the, the Soviets and China had nuclear weapons. Uh, that was of some concern. People, uh, civilians, uh, were building uh, bomb shelters in their backyards and stuff uh, in case of nuclear attack. And however much money you had depended on how nice your bomb shelter was. Uh, but we had a lot of fun. Uh, never, never really gave that too much thought. Although it was, it was a back, it was like a cloud hanging over mm -hmm. uh, the nation, but not to that extent because, hey, we had new automobiles and we were all looking for girls, <laughs> and uh, it, it, life was fun. We had a we had a good time, and personally, I I just wanted to fly airplanes, and so uh, looking for a way to do that. Yeah, it, it was a pretty, pretty rosy time, really, high school and uh, college. I'd say militarily, we hadn't really got into the Cold War yet in 56, 58. Uh, it was there, and the biggest part of it was the Korean War. That was the one thing that was had damaged America as far as militarily from Second World War into this utopia that where they were building, and then mm -hmm. Korea came up, and that started to be the building blocks of the Cold War. So, what was when you speak about Korea, real quick? What was what was the learning lesson, or what do you think that it was? Because this was, what do you think was how was America adjusting post Korea? What was well, the attitude? Well, I was the thinking of 
We were friends with Russia not too long ago in World War II, and all of a sudden this Korea came up, and all of a sudden China and Russia were now adversaries, and that was the beginning of the Cold War. We, we pivoted pretty quickly from we were friends, now we're enemies. Bob, what do you think? The thing I remember is, is when we were in, in uh, primary training, there was several Cuban officers mm -hmm. that were training with us, and all of a sudden they disappeared. Meaning they were probably, uh, I think Batista was the one that actually recalled them. Okay. And uh, obviously we never knew what happened to them. Nice kids, but uh, we often would have, most of them were, were kids of senior military people. Mm -hmm. And that's what got them into flight training. And uh, we, I often wondered what happened. That to me was the very first part of what, we, what was to come. Right. This is Rodney. And... One of the things you have to remember is that there was a draft back at, when we were young, at 18, 20 years old, whatever. The, the draft was still going on. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So being able-bodied, uh, the way to not be drafted was to go to college. But if you didn't make it to college, you were going to be drafted. Okay. okay. So in my own personal experience was I worked my way through college. I said, you know... This is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I knew that you had to get two years of college before you could get uh, accepted into the Naval Cadet training, flight training program. So um, that's what I did. But one of the real reasons I became a Naval aviator was my, my I had a cousin that was a little bit older than myself that married a local guy in Chinook, Montana. And he was a Naval aviator during World War II and the Korean War. And he used to come back, and he had all kinds of photos landing and taking off off the state straight deck carriers. They didn't have the angled deck back then, so you'd see airplanes ending up into the barriers uh, uh, that you know to stop them from going off the end. Mm -hmm. And um, I, this guy was my real hero, and that's wow. really be why I became a naval aviator. Wow, that's amazing, Dub. Well, I'm Dub Fields again, and uh, I guess my dad was in World War II, so I was affected by that. Uh, he, he survived it and came back home, but uh, the military was in my future, I felt. Uh, one day in high school, uh, before Elvis Presley came to town and, and rode around in a convertible with all the rest of us in the same high school, and uh, we didn't even know who he was, except we knew it was going to cost $2 to go hear him uh, sing his songs. This was in Kilgore, Texas, back in the 50s. He came and rode around with you. Yeah, he. Um, we didn't even know who Elvis Presley was. We just knew he was doing a concert, and it was going to be a couple of bucks to get in and hear it. Wow, and that's a lot of money back then. Uh, well, it was. And he uh, rode around. Uh, they had pictures of him in the back of the convertible, and he just was one of the guys, which turned out good. Uh, unfortunately, uh, a young waitress in a close-by town chose to tell the police that he had harassed her, so Elvis didn't stay around too long after that, but obviously he came out of it okay. Yeah. So since the military was ingrained in me, uh, a guy one day said, do you like shoot rifles? And I said, yeah, I guess so. And he said, well, why don't you join the Army National Guard? And uh, they have rifles and everything. You can just have a lot of fun. 
Well, that sounds like, <laughs> sound like the way I wanted to go, so I joined the Army National Guard, spent three years there, and then it was time to re-enlist, and so by then I was going to college. So the Air National Guard appealed to me more than crawling around with the scorpions on the ground, mm-hmm. uh, as I had been doing for three years. And I thought, I'd rather be up there where those guys are than down here with all the snakes and scorpions. So I, I went in, was accepted for pilot training uh, with the Air Force, and I thought, boy, I'm on my way. Well, over Christmas, I had an oil field accident. My dad was a petroleum engineer and was on a drilling rig over Christmas. So a piece of 2,000-pound piece of pipe got knocked off of the uh, pipe rack and hit me right across the right leg. And uh, fortunately, it was muddy, and we were in Louisiana, and it was about an hour and a half away from Shreveport. So they finally were able to get the the forum to get the pipe off of my leg. And so I spent the next few years uh, recovering from that. But very quickly, the Germans developed a method in World War II to get the POWs back to work quicker. So they developed this where they would cut into your leg or arm, insert a rod there, and then just cover the top. And uh, that quickly got me back. Uh, So... Now I'm, I'm out of the hospital and in good shape, and the doctor said I can go to flight training. Went to Waco, Texas, because they asked me to come down and get a physical. So I went down to get the physical, and uh, I had a cast on my leg at the time, but they still took x-rays. So I got a letter from the Air Force saying that you are forever disqualified from Air Force pilot training, and the reason, a broken leg. So I was really disappointed. And so I went along there, and I was still in college, and all of a sudden the Naval Aviation Program opened up, and I thought, maybe I can do that. Well, they accepted me with open arms. <laughs> they didn't know later I was going to wreck a few planes, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I went in. Went a few, in, a few w- million dollars yeah, worth of damage, oh, I'm well. sure. Yeah, you got a you got a learning curve. You had to go get yeah. above. <laughs> so that was it for me. Uh, as far as what life was like uh, after Elvis, um, it was good. I think the country really pulled together as much as they could. Uh, unfortunately, as we got into Vietnam, things changed, and that's when the whole attitude of the country mm-hmm. changed. And uh, we had people that were caught in the fire on the aircraft carrier and they died. And I recall they brought the bodies to San Diego for a funeral. And uh, the demonstrators were so active there that they had to keep the police, keep the demonstrators away from the funeral site. So it was, a, it was an ugly, ugly time. Mm-hmm. But I think we all, having grown up in the 50s and World War II, uh, we still thought the country was strong enough to mm-hmm. stand by and weather it. So. Wow. It's very interesting to th- as I, I watched you gentlemen kind of re- recount your story. Bill, you started off at this end of the table and you were talking, you, your initial comments were um, you, the United States was king of the hill. We had just, you know, a, a few short years before, I think you said 13 years before, won World War II, and we're... Um, we're at the top, the, we're the king of the hill, 
and then we watch you guys kind of relive your story and dub it to the at the end of the table. The your final comments are about how things had changed, and within a few short years, we went from maybe peace, prosperity, the the, the country being united, um, maybe a, a hope and an optimism for the future, and then we get into Vietnam and the in that I I remember my dad telling me stories about the Vietnam era, and how he felt like the country was being ripped apart, and so in, in some respects, I, maybe this l segue for something I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Um, as a father of six children myself, I feel like we're navigating some of those similar type um, times right now in America. And I, as my dad uh, has, he's shared with me, it's like, man, Bobby, it just, it feels a little bit like the 1960s. It feels like the, the country's very divided and uh the, the the country is going through some stressors right now what would you know the, the other i'd like to hear your your feedback on that and maybe what words of encouragement you guys lived through it you're proud americans you're naval aviators you love your country you served your country um what would you what words of encouragement would you give maybe to young people right now young people who don't have a lot of life behind them they don't have a lot of life experience and they're they're trying to navigate these challenging times. What type of word of words of encouragement would give young people to motivate and inspire them to do great things? Like I hear multiple gentlemen here said that you were like Rodney. You said you know you, there was somebody that you looked up to. That, that was that that naval aviator that came back. You're like I want to be like him. He inspired you to greatness. You know you guys are people that young people today look up to. You're American heroes. What type? How would you inspire today's generation to greatness and to navigate some of these difficult times? Uh, I this think, is Floyd. This is Floyd. Yes, this is Floyd. Uh, I think the biggest, the, of course, the biggest split we have is the split between the right and the left politically. And I, my advice, and I tell this to young people, we, our government operates because we're a two-party system. This election has just proven that we are a two-party system, and it's split right down the middle. Mm -hmm. And either if you're left or right doesn't matter. Fact is that we have elected people to make decisions for our country mm -hmm. and to do it in good faith and in harmony. Mm -hmm. But that's our system. Not that we're against the other side of the spectrum, but that we have this ability we don't have a dictatorship we don't mm -hmm. have a you know a king or whatever we have a two-party system political political system mm -hmm. that operates our country and i really try to tell people to forget this extremism mm -hmm. and talk about the good things that you can do together and negotiate together yeah, that's great words of wisdom bill well, I see the division. Well, like uh, Dub said down there, uh, started in uh, Vietnam, where a lot of Americans went to Canada to avoid the draft. I see the division between capitalism and socialism. And socialism is appealing if you don't know capitalism. Mm -hmm. Socialism says, we're going to give everybody everything you need, and you don't. And you got a phone, and a and a car. What else do you need? 
Well, capitalism lifts more people out of poverty than socialism ever could. Mm -hmm. I saw a cartoon the other day. Capitalism is a man fishing in the river, catching his own fish. Uh, and the socialist is fishing in the other fisherman's bucket, getting the <laughs> fish that he's already caught. Yeah. Uh, socialism's appeal that for these youngsters that I don't really have to do anything. We're just going to spread the wealth. Well, mm -hmm. if you spread the wealth of 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 this nation and and give everybody the same thing, everybody's poor. Mm -hmm. except for the leaders in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't want to see that. Capitalism lifts people out of poverty. Sounds like we need to be, our, our young people, all of us need to be educated, li lifelong learners, and really dig in and take the time to learn these things as opposed to just maybe believe what's printed on Twitter or social media or whatever else, right? Like, Bob, what do you think? Well, I think talking about the country... Uh, in the in the late '60s, early '60s, mm -hmm. the last thing you wanted somebody to know was you were in the military. It was not something that people respected. Uh, it was uh, you were actually not treated well, not because not personally, but just because of what who, what your representative mm -hmm. representative. And I think what's happened today, which is a transition, which is very, very pleasing is today military members are being very, very well respected. And I think you can instill that in younger people. Mm -hmm. You're going to see a transition. Mm -hmm. And we're in that transition right now. And I think you've got to be still believe in who you are and the country in which you represent. But things are getting better for military people. And I think they're getting better in general for people. But yet you have these people who feel like uh, the, the the U.S. is terrible. Ask them to move to some other country. Mm -hmm. Get them out of here because they're not supporting the system. Mm. Well said. Rodney? Well, um, I don't know where to start, actually. First of all, I think one of the biggest problems with our country today is the media. Mm. Um, I read the New York Times every day, practically. And uh, and I watch television, Business Channel, Fox News Channel, CNBC, whatever. And I agree with Bill. Capitalism has lifted more people out of uh, dire circumstances than social socialism could ever even think about doing. Mm -hmm. I've traveled through Eastern European countries, and um, in fact, I've been to all seven continents in, in on the on the world surface, wow. and. Uh, and I've seen extreme extreme poverty, like places like Egypt or um, particularly Mexico, mm -hmm. um, some places in Africa. And it's just, if we had an honest media, would really help this country a lot, mm. rather than them trying to project uh, their opinions uh, to the general population, if they just report the news, mm -hmm. uh, factually, it would be a whole big improvement. But I've always tried to set an example personally, and mm -hmm. I think that goes a long ways, particularly raising a family. Mm -hmm. uh, if you 
are honest, you teach your children to believe in God, your country, mm-hmm. and that family is important. And I really tried to see that all of my, I have four children, we're all well-educated. The country is divided, yeah. and I don't know what the solution is. Uh, hopefully, it's got to come from the top. Our mm-hmm. national leaders um, have to lead our country mm-hmm. and make good decisions for it. Mm-hmm. And um, democracy is great. There is drawbacks uh, of that system mm-hmm. because in Washington, D.C., we've got bureaucrats and agencies that are nothing but appointed people, mm-hmm. and they set rules and regulations and um, that the rest of us are supposed to abide by. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when this president came in, Biden decided that, you know, he was going to do away with the petroleum products, mm-hmm. fuel. Well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that thousands upon thousands of products that are produced in our country come from petroleum, mm-hmm. not just gasoline or diesel. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> there are tons of products. Right. So when you shut off that, I mean, what do you expect to happen to your economy? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a terrible decision. So until we get national leaders that can see the way forward, I mean, we're going to be really divided. Dub? Well, I agree with most of everything that's been said. Uh, I think the media tries to do an honest job. However, we've got all sorts of politicians, as you know, that uh, don't want to accept a viewpoint other than their own viewpoint, and that's unfortunate. As far as the military, a comment was made about how the military is being treated uh, I recall when I was on a board selection board uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, everybody wore civilian clothes because they didn't want to be identified as the military. Then when President Reagan came in and he changed it so that people wore the uniform uh, at least one day a week, and uh, that, that kind of started the movement towards accepting the military back in. Mm. Uh, not that it applies, but I, I like the fact that here in Florabama, where I was yesterday, there's a sign there that says alcohol, and underneath it it says, a good story never developed from somebody eating a salad. So <laughs> I thought, boy, isn't that the truth? And here we are telling all these stories today <laughs> uh, in the morning. But uh, I guess for young people, just to finish up what I've got to say about it, uh, I think we've got young people that are trying to make decisions just as all of us have had to do. Some decisions were good. Some of them have been bad, and we've learned from both of them. Uh, Bob Flynn, who was captured by the Red Chinese and one of our classmates, uh, passed away. And he spent all five and a half years in a Chinese prison, and all but two days of that was in solitary confinement. Uh, so wow. they were asked Bob when he was still alive how he managed to do that. And he had six principles that I think all of us, as well as young people today, could do. And they said, how did you survive this, uh, Commander? And he said, well, there are six things that I've tried to live by. One was God. You need God in your life. Mm-hmm. And the next step is duty. And he says, if you have God in your life and you do your duty properly, uh, you'll come out on top. Uh, The third thing was honor. 
And he said, uh, if you do the job right and you have God on your side and do the honorable thing, uh, things will develop. Mm. Uh, the fourth one was country. And he said, you, you do what you can to help your country always. The fifth one was family, which he said, uh, you've got to have a strong family support system to get you through things like I did. And lastly, it was self. And he said, if you believe in yourself and you have to do these other five principles, then uh, things will come along. And I think that's what the children today, young adults, uh, need to live by those six principles. And if they do, I think they'll turn out just fine. Uh, I love how he has them in the proper order where self is last, not first. That's amazing. Well, well said, Dub. Or, yeah, Dub, thank you so much. Um, well, I, th I think about you, the, so the, I asked you the question about what you would, words of encouragement that you would share with you know, young people today that are starting their career. Um, and that, that, Dub, that was uh, amazing for you to be able to remember all six of those in order the way you did with your, your, your friend, uh, but it was Bob Flynn. Is that correct? Bob Flynn. Um, are there any other maybe principles that you guys learned in the military, things that you, uh, disciplines or principles, things that uh, you feel were in, uh, taught to you in the military that you used throughout the rest of your, your life? Cause you all went on to other careers and do things you've been successful or are there things that you would share with, it doesn't have to even be be children, but let's assume we you know this is a, a tough time um, for many Americans economically. Uh, we have you know rising inflation. We're hearing that there's a lot of um, layoffs coming, in the, even in the tech sector, right? So in Silicon Valley, it's very unheard of for large tech companies who have been doing very well. They're laying off uh, not just thousands, but tens of thousands of, of employees. So there's you know there's a lot of moms and dads, mid-career professionals in their you know, 40s um, that are now facing some economic challenges. What type of words of encouragement, maybe principles, things of success did you learn in your military career that people could uh, apply to their their everyday life to help them navigating challenging times? Because you guys all went through challenges, right? And the, the Navy, you know, wasn't uh, uh, the primrose path. You guys went through difficulties. There were times where maybe you were scared, um, there, there uncertainty, but you guys navigated that. You learned how to navigate those challenging situations what what type of words of encouragement would you give people i'd say my life starting off as a little farm kid in north dakota uh the biggest thing that affected my life was the fact that my mother taught a one-room school with about 10 kids no not even that probably six kids in it mm -hmm. and not having a babysitter she put me in first grade when I was just five years old. So I, I've always been the youngest in anything I do. Uh, I'd say my life has been always the thing about two paths. You have to make, you're at a decision, whatever it is. You have to go down this path or this path. I've always had a two-decision path, and I've been very fortunate to always take the appropriate path. Mm. Always decisions life decisions and mm -hmm. you go eh, i'm gonna go this way <laughs> it's definitely what it is and uh be it in the military i ended up in commercial aviation i flew for united for 32 years wow and uh it's just 
I've been fortunate, very mm -hmm. fortunate, but I've always made that. I look back at the those major junctions when mm -hmm. I made decisions, kind of instantaneous to say, well, you, mm -hmm. you have a background of why you're there, but you take this road. Right, the, the, right. Ro the road less traveled, right? Yeah. So when you were in that spot where there's a fork in the road and you've got to choose, I'm either going to go right or I'm going to go left. It, it, is there something that's going through your mind to help you make that decision on which fork or which path? To I think take? the decision came of trying to look ahead and saying, okay, I'm going to do this, but mm -hmm. where is it going to take me mm -hmm. in 20 years or whatever? Mm -hmm. And you say, okay, that's going to be a better outlook. And I go down that and, you know, you live through it. So you made decisions with intentionality, thinking about the future. Yeah, think, just thinking about the end. If I do take this path, I don't know where it's leading, but what would be the result of taking this over the other path? Wow. That's, that's great words of wisdom. Anybody else have something you'd want to add? Well, I grew, grew up in Detroit, Bill Soames here. Uh, and I can remember as a kid walking down the block a couple blocks over, a couple blocks the other way. People had these flags in their window, some with blue stars, some with silver stars, and some with gold stars. I recognized from that experience that a lot of people had family in the military during World War II. Uh, today, when people say, thank you for your service, I am not always appreciative of that because in World War II, we were united. Everybody was in the game. Mm -hmm. Everybody was supporting the military. Uh, two women next door to me when I was a kid were in their 20s or so. They worked uh, in munitions plants and aircraft uh, assembly plants. Everybody supported the war effort. We, uh, gas was rationed, food was rationed. Uh, you couldn't buy a car because all the automobile manufacturers were building airplanes, tanks, jeeps, what have you. Uh, now, when people say thank you for your service, uh, I'm thinking, what did you do mm -hmm. uh, for the country? And I noticed just recently uh, Xi Jinping in China has told the Chinese people that they will all be supporting the military effort. And I think that's what's essential. If you're going to win wars, you need to support the effort. We see uh, our president... Uh, giving a lot of uh, war supplies to Ukraine, and that's a good thing. Are we, re are we replacing those war supplies we're giving away? Mm -hmm. I doubt it. $31 trillion in debt is not a good thing. Mm. It will catch up to us. Uh, and I'm probably off the subject that you asked me to, Sorry. were asking to talk about, but that's what was on yeah. my mind. No, that's... I'm Appreciate you sharing. Anybody else have anything? Dove, I saw you down there at the end of the table scratching some notes on a notepad. Well, one of the things uh, they have to keep in mind, it, 
the younger generation, I mean, for us guys sitting here today, we weren't afraid to fail. And if, if you want to accomplish things in this life, you got to be acceptable to the fact that you can fail. Mm-hmm. You know, if that happens, then you pull yourself together and continue on. Uh, but you can't be afraid to fail. And that, that, that's something mm-hmm. that I've always had in the back of my mind. The other thing in the military and in general life, you have to be honest. You have to be an honest person mm-hmm. and to set an example for the, those people that are, you work with or people that your, your family. Uh, and, and I can't tell you how important I feel that that is to be an honest person. Mm. Along that point, Rodney, you were talking about um, not being afraid to fail. And, you know, Bill, this morning over breakfast, you were talking about uh, the when you were being sworn in uh, there in Detroit. Uh, I think you Gross Seal um, Naval Air Station down there uh, on the river. And you said that it was in the midst of your swearing in ceremony. You were watching a plane do touch and goes out there on the runway. And midway through, the, the plane went up, it, uh, the engine sputtered, and it nosedived into a cornfield. And you literally watched two Navy, naval aviators um, perish that morning. And the commanding officer that was in the midst of your swearing-in ceremony turned to you and said, hey, you sure you want to do this? And um, in that moment, you were having to make a decision of, you know what, I'm going to do something that's risky. You knew the risk. You saw it right in front of you. Um, and so not only do you guys were you guys willing to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to fail. I'm not afraid of failure, but I'm also going to take a risk. You guys, every single day that you put the uniform on, every single day that you flew an airplane, you were taking a risk, calculated risks. But there's no such thing as doing accomplishing great things in life without taking calculated risks, right? So you've got to be willing to do that. There's, um, I, I think sometimes if we... we People want to be successful in life, but they're like, oh, I don't want to take any risks. It's like, yeah, you got to lean into some of those things, right? But that really touched you this morning, Bill. I saw, I mean, how many years ago was that, Bill? It, 64 years ago. And I, I, as you were retelling that story, I could see you kind of choke up a little bit. You knew exactly who those two gentlemen were. You remembered their names as if it was yesterday. And, um, but that was something that each and every one of you, as you were serving in the military, you had to take those risks every single day. In my case, a lot of those risks were self-inflicted. <laughs> I remember in flight training, we had to do a loop in the T-28, and we did it at, I think, three, three Gs or something like that. And uh, 10 years later, I'm flying a T-33 out over the Virginia Capes, just off the coast of Virginia and North Carolina area. And I said, you know, I haven't done a loop in 10 years. I'm flying a single-engine jet. And I said, I'm going to do a loop. (laughs) The smartest thing I did in that loop was started at 20,000 feet. (laughs) (laughs) Where did you end up when you came to? Well, I said, said, I'm going to pull up at 6 G's. And I forgot all about grunting and tightening your abs and all that stuff. I didn't have on a G-suit. and, and as I was going through the vertical, my vision narrowed right down, like they said in uh, 
polite physiology, your vision narrows right down. And then, of course, the blood's draining out of your brain. So, and the first thing you lose is your eyesight. I could still think. And I said, no, I think I'm going straight up. And uh, th then I got to the point where I didn't care. You know, I, th no blood in the brain. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden, uh, I was awake again. And I said, I think I'm going straight up and I'm going to start falling back on the tail. And it's going to flame out the engine. And I said, this is trouble. But I moved the throttle. I said, well, the engine's still responding. Oh, it was... To, to set the stage, it was one of these gray days. The ocean was gray. The sky was gray. Oh, there was no. no horizon. The land was gray. Everything was gray. It's like you're in a, it's like you're in a gray your soup thing. Uh, you can't see anything. And so I said, well, I think I'm. I said, well, the engine's working. So I said, I'll just pull on through and pulled out at nine thousand feet. And uh, thank God for twenty thousand feet. Wow, that's amazing. And I got about six more of those stories where I should have died but didn't. Mm -hmm. The old aviator adage, three things that a pilot doesn't need, altitude above you, runway behind you, and fuel left in a truck. That's right. That's right. I, I learned one the other day. I was listening to a podcast. Uh, I was sharing this with some of you guys about uh, Colonel Lee Ellis, an Air Force pilot that was uh, shot down over uh, Vietnam and spent five and a half years as a POW. And uh, he was recounting some stories. And one of the phrases he used multiple times in the, uh, uh, the podcast as he was talking about his combat tour, specifically when he was shot down over Vietnam, um, and he was said, uh, I think that the quote was, um, out of airspeed, out of ideas. And he was like, <laughs> yeah. and he goes, that's, that's a kind of a, 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 a phrase you guys use in the air. It's like, okay, we're, we're in some bad soup right now. <laughs> out of airspeed, out of ideas. You know, I just like to go back to why we're here today. Mm -hmm. uh, we started out in 1958, uh, 48 guys got together, knew a few of us knew each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a goal, that was to learn how to drill, march, and perform. And within, we didn't know what we were involved in. We didn't know what we get even getting into. And after marching, what, four or five hours a day, every day, for how many weeks? We ended up going, our first performance in was in Soldiers Field in Chicago. Wow. We performed at halftime to a standing ovation. Now that made everybody feel proud. Oh, wow. And what year, that was in 58? 58. When I uh, talk to people and talk about the drill team, I say, mm -hmm. well, I didn't really know what I was getting into, you know. Uh, and other people, we do two, two weeks of training. And on Friday night, we get in two airplanes. Saturday, we march out on Soldier Field at halftime and perform before whatever 40,000 people or the stadium was full, standing ovation. Wow. Well, um, I, I appreciate you, gentlemen, your time. We've, I want to be respectful of your time. I could literally sit here and talk to you all day long. I just, I'm fascinated about all your stories and the where you served and the planes that you flew and um, the risks that you took, Bill. I mean, it sounds like you've got a couple more. Really good stories up your sleeve there. Um, so, um, but I, one of the things that I would like to ask you, just being selfish, 
as a father, I'm a father of six, and you gentlemen, many of you have uh, children, you've talked about your children, what advice would you give parents today? Or specific, let me be, drill it down even further. What, what, what advice would you give fathers who are raising their children? Words of advice, things that you've learned along the way. I mean, I've um, you know, been a father now for a number of years, and I look back on my life, and I'm like, eh, you know what? When I was a young father, a new father, you know, I just like, I've, I've grown, right? I, I was like, ah, you know, if I, if I could go back and do it all over again, maybe I wouldn't do this. Hopefully I'm a better father for my, my young, I have a five-year-old boy, uh, Zebediah. And, you know, so I, I feel like I've, I'm a better dad for him than I was my firstborn son, Lachlan. Um, you know, you just learn, right? I, I want to be the best dad I possibly can be. What, what, any words of advice that, and things that you learned over the years as you were raising your children? Oh, I have to go along with Rodney on that. It's just honesty and integrity in everything mm -hmm. you do. Just be right, you know, just and be honest about it. You do something, tell people about it. You know, mm -hmm. that's the one thing. Aviators, you don't hide anything. You know, you want want to learn. You have an accident, you want to learn, or you have a some incident or something. Mm -hmm. You need to learn from it so you do a better job next time. Okay, that's great advice. Pay attention to your kids. Mm, yeah. Spend time with them. Yeah. That's great. Great advice. I can't remember exactly where this was, but it was a, going into some airfield with in operations, and there's a big sign there on the top, and it said, you can't hoot with the owls at night if you want to fly with the eagles in the daytime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's right. Uh, I've heard that one, too. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Well, I would agree with everything that's been said here. Uh, being a good parent, uh, you have to be there for the children. Uh, unfortunately, our society today is with two working parents. The children are in daycare, and they spend most of their time there. And what you have to do, I think, as a parent, is make yourself available to your children. Mm -hmm. Lead by example and uh, be the best person that you can be. And if, if the parents are there, unfortunately, what I see in Minnesota is we've got so many parents uh, that are not even around for their children because they're trying to work two jobs or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I've picked up out of this election, the son of Herschel Walker, and he made the comment the other day when uh, Herschel Walker was being lambasted for supporting abortion, even though he said he was against it. And then he paid a couple of ladies to have abortion. And the son, uh, in a moment of wrath, said, uh, my dad, Herschel Walker, has these children, and he doesn't even know who their mothers are or where they are, and he doesn't pay attention to any of us. Well, I thought that's a sad statement mm -hmm. that he made there. And Unfortunately, I hope we're not all like that, yeah. and maybe society will be better. Fathers play a very important role in their in their their children's lives, and it's it, children who grow up without a father. It, it, there's definitely pain there, not not having that. Um, well, I've got one last question for you guys, but uh, I want to. Is there before we I ask you that question? Is there anything in particular that you would like to share? Is there something that a story that you'd like to share something that's on on your heart something that you would like to um, share with people young people parents before I ask my final question 
you guys have been so gracious with your time and your your wisdom and i'm super thankful that you've uh, agreed to do this and um I'm, i just want to let you guys know how much i respect you and i appreciate you guys being here and i hope you had a fun time at the air show watching your 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 uh, your brothers out there your brothers and sisters flying all those planes and the blue angels and everything else that's going on but any final all right so my, my i guess my final question would be um, you, you can all answer this or just whoever wants to, but it's a question I've been asking leaders that I've been interviewing here recently. Um, but the, the final question I've asked has been, if you, if you were the president of the United States right now, and you had the ability to give a state of the union address to the American people, just thinking about everything that's going on, um, we we barely briefly touched on you know we touched on a little bit on the economy we touched on some of the geopolitical issues that we have with Ukraine right now and then you know there's some certainly some saber rattling in the South China Sea with China and Taiwan um, you know North Korea's you know shooting off missiles again but with everything that's going on in the world what would your statement be to the American people How, what type of what would you say would it, would it be a word of encouragement. Would it be a word of maybe admonishment to say, come on, guys, America, come on, we're get together. Let's, let's rally together. Let's rally around the flag. We can do this. We've got more in common than we have differences. What would your, um, if you had the ability to address the American people, what would you say? Uh, I was elected, and my first item on the agenda is term limits for the Congress, and I'll do everything I can in my power to get away from this seniority building of both the Senate and the co mm. Congress. That's a great insight. It was Floyd. Thank you, Floyd. Yeah, that Bill? was Floyd. I, I don't have... Captain Ooh. Bill's addressing the American public right now. Here we go. I don't have any words uh, other than let's pull together, guys. We got big things to, to do. Uh, the Japanese in World War II were taking over the checkpoints that would blockade the United States from communicating via sea with Australia. Mm -hmm. They wanted to take Port Moresby, New Guinea. Uh, because of the Battle of Coral Sea, uh, we prevented that. China is taking over all those places that China, that Japan wanted to take over to block communications with Australia. And I think we need to realize what's going on in the world and and prepare for eventualities coming down the pike. Mm -hmm. Well, if I to address the American people, and this is just off the top of my head, but I would try to be a real optimist, mm -hmm. okay? Um, I don't know where you were, but I saw the Carter administration, mm -hmm. and then I saw the Reagan administration. And I thought to myself, my God, what a difference between, you know, guy saying you're going to have to live with these gas lines. You know, you're sitting in your car hoping you can fill up and get enough gas to go to work. Mm -hmm. And then you've got a guy that comes in and he says, I'm going to solve this problem. And he, and he does. Mm -hmm. He solves it in about a year. And gas lines disappear, mm -hmm. right? Because he was a real optimist about what America can accomplish rather mm -hmm. than putting restrictions on mm -hmm. what you can do and what you can't do. 
So I would try to be a real optimist talking to the American people about what a great country it is. People that live here have accomplished tremendous things throughout history since the beginning of the very beginning of this country. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what I would talk about if I had mm-hmm. to address the American people. Oh, that's wonderful, Rodney. Dub? Uh, Dub here. And, uh, yeah, I agree with everything Rodney said and the rest of it down the line. Uh, we just have to, optimism is one thing. Uh, realism is another. We have to know our limits and observe them. And we have to get the American public all on one side instead of opposing each other. So that, that's what I think we need to do. Well said. Well, I'm optimistic sitting here in front of one, two, three, four, five uh, American heroes, veterans. Here we are a day. We, we tried to record this on Veterans Day, but we, we pushed it for one more day. So a day after Veterans Day, uh, five naval aviators who serve their country proudly with distinction and honor and um, are still optimistic today. And uh, I know that as you guys are going out and you're engaging, you, we, you, I've, I've watched you here at the hotel. You're talking to people in the elevator. You're talking to people in the club level. You're talking to people in the lobby. And uh, you're wearing your hat. I said, Dub, I've, uh, I've seen your, uh, your veteran's hat with the Corsair on there. And you, you proudly wear the, um, your, your hat and letting people know and um, sharing words of optimism. And I'm optimistic that young people will hear your stories, be motivated and inspired uh, Rodney, just like you were motivated, at, you said it was in Montana, right? When you had friends coming back and you know, talking about the things they were doing on that aircraft carrier, that you guys will motivate the next generation of um, of young warriors. We and, and actually, that's what America needs. We we need uh, a, a, the next generation of warriors, men and women who are willing to step up, wear the uniform, serve their country, because uh, no matter uh, the time in history, there's always been. Uh, evil people who have wanted to do evil things that is only um, averted by men and women who are willing to be courageous, take risk, and stand up and do great things to protect freedom. And that's exactly what you guys have done. And so my hat's off to you and a salute. When, when I'm able to take these, uh, this head, these headphones off, I'll, give you, I'll render you gentlemen a proper salute. <laughs> so thank you so much. Thank you so much for your service, guys. I really appreciate it. Yes, sir. You, you have a wonderful a time here in Pensacola, and um, well, hopefully I'll get to uh, see you guys in, in the near future. Apparently, you guys are coming down here on a regular basis, right? All right. Well, you gentlemen have a nice afternoon. Hey, you too. Wow. Listening to it again, I just wish I had more time to be with them. I have so many more questions I'd like to ask. My call to each of us is this. Wherever you are, if you're enjoying freedom, make sure to thank a veteran. But more important than that, take time to sit down and listen to their stories. Hear what they've learned in life and their life of service. I promise you this, you'll learn a lot that you'll be able to apply to your life and no matter what you're doing, it'll help you be successful. Second, learn why they love their country and their countrymen so much that they gave an oath to serve and protect and even die for their country. You know, today we face growing divisiveness in our nation. Are we perfect? No, but I believe that to truly understand America, we need to understand the men and women who fought and gave their life and blood 
to build this great nation, to protect this great nation, and to defend millions around the globe from tyranny and oppression. This is a great country because we are blessed with brave and selfless men and women who have understood service to a higher cause, and they gave their life to do just that. When you hear their stories and you see the world through their eyes, you will understand America better. Finally, you don't need to serve in the military to serve your country. We need men and women in every sector of society serving today, helping their neighbor, protecting the innocent, speaking truth to power, and looking for ways to make the world a better place. You may go unknown, you may go unnoticed, but I can promise you this, you will not find greater joy or satisfaction in life than of living a life of service and knowing you are spending your life well and making a difference no matter how great or small. God bless you and God bless America.